Well, good morning, and thank you for tuning in again. And, and once again, I hope this video finds that you and your families are doing well. My name is David Creech. I'm with the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can see our times of services on the screen here, and you can check out our website at www.godsredeemed.org. And that also has the times of our services, as well as any uh, important announcements about the way that we are assembling. Today we're going to continue our study in the New Testament book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. This is lesson number 10, and we'll be concluding our study of Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and be turning over to Acts chapter 9, right around verse 19. Recall from last week, we spent almost the entire class answering a single question. At what point in Saul's conversion story was Saul actually saved? Or in other words, at what point was his name written in the book of life? We spent so much time talking about that because the most important question in life is, what must I do to be saved? And you know, as important as that question is, uh, the answer varies widely amongst those that call themselves Christians. Uh, some will say, just repeat after me and pray the sinner's prayer. And at the conclusion of that prayer, if you meant what you said, then you were saved. Some will say, uh, you have to go to the mourner's bench and, and pray through. That is, pray that God will reveal to you that you are among the saved. Others will say, pray that you're filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can speak in tongues, and then you'll know that you're saved. Some will say, no, you must believe in God, put your faith in Jesus, repent of sins, be baptized, remain within the fold of the church, and die in a state of grace which, by the way, can only be received or dispensed through certain acts that we take. Acts uh, that some people would call sacraments, for instance, like baptism, communion, confirmation, last rites, and penance, or what would be the confession of sins to a priest, for instance. There are those that say that belief in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, is not necessary. <clears throat> Still others would say that it doesn't matter what you believe or even what you do because all roads lead to heaven. And I'm sure I've left some off, but lastly there are those that would say you must hear the word and believe it. You must make the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You must come to God with a heart that has been pierced, that is filled with a godly sorrow, the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance. And you must be baptized for the remission of sins. So is it any wonder that people today are confused about the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Now look, I'm not going to tell you which of these answers is the right one. If you're not sure and if you really want to know, study. Diligently study to show yourself approved to God, as we're told over in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. 
But I would ask you, which of these answers most closely matches what we have already talked about in the book of Acts? So far, we've seen a number of conversions as examples from, from the 3,000 souls that were saved on, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the conversion of those in Samaria, including Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, also in Acts chapter 8. And we spent a lot of time talking about Saul himself in Acts chapter 9. And you've heard me say it many times already, and I hope you don't get tired of hearing it. But in order to most accurately answer the question, what must I do to be saved? We just need to open up our Bibles and read. Right here in the book of Acts, what, what first century Christians did in order to be saved. And, and if we will do exactly what they did, then we can know. Most assuredly, uh, is a phrase used many times by Jesus, we can know most assuredly that we will be just as saved as they were. We have got to get the right answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Because think about it, if we don't get that right, then nothing else matters. And since Acts is a, a book of conversions, we'll certainly see more examples as we continue in our studies. And this week, my, my plan is to finish up chapter 9. We're going to see multiple plots to kill Saul of Tarsus, the man who was perhaps the greatest weapon in the arsenal of the high priest in Jerusalem, is now playing for the other side, so to speak, and doing so with just as much zeal, perhaps even more, for what many in the Sanhedrin saw as the enemy. So, of course, they want him gone. We'll see Peter visiting the saints in a city called Lydda. We'll see uh, the healing of Aeneas, who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Sharon turns to the Lord. I asked the question a couple of weeks ago, who was Sharon? What makes her so special that she's mentioned here? Uh, that was my attempt at a little bit of humor, but stay tuned for the answer. We'll see Tabitha, and Luke points out that her Greek name was Dorcas, and she's raised from the dead. And we'll see Peter staying in Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 19, after Ananias lays his hands on Saul, and Saul received his sight, and recall that Saul was blinded by that heavenly vision on the road to Damascus, uh, had been blind for three days and had not taken anything to eat or to drink. Uh, after he washed away his sins through baptism and took the name of Jesus Christ as his own name, verse 19 says that he received food and was strengthened. And as we read down through verses uh, from verse 19 down to verse 26, all, all we know from those verses is that Saul spent some days in Damascus, verse 19, preached in the synagogues, verse 20, that, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. There's that great confession again upon which Christ said his church would be built. He confounded the Jews in Damascus in verse 22, 
proving that Jesus is the Christ. And recall from Acts chapter 6 that Stephen also had spoken in such a way that the Jews were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And then it says in verse 23 that after many days, the Jews plotted to kill him, keeping watch at the gates of the city, uh, that is Damascus, day and night, verse 24. Paul uh, provides a little more detail on this over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, his second letter to the church at Corinth, the verses 32 and 33. It says, in Damascus, the governor under Eratus the king was guarding the city of the Damascus with a garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Now the Bible doesn't give us any more information about this King Eratus, but historians tell us, so take that for what it's worth, <clears throat> that he was the king of the Nabataeans, uh, who were an Aramaic-speaking people of Arabia. So that's interesting. I kind of bookmark that for the moment. Uh, it just so happens that King Eratus was the father of Herod's first wife. You may recall that John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod Antipas after uh, he denounced the unlawful marriage between uh, Herod Antipas and Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Well, his first wife, the one before Herodias, <clears throat> was the daughter of King Eratus. And furthermore, historians tell us that following the divorce, King Eratus went to battle with Herod's forces and took Damascus from him. We're also not told why this governor under King Eratus was trying to arrest Saul. It's not unreasonable to assume, based on Saul's original mission to Damascus, that there was a very strong Jewish presence there. And in those days, a governor's job was contingent on his ability to keep the peace. Uh, as was the case with Stephen, I could easily see false charges being brought against Saul as an instigator and a blasphemer and you know, as someone who should be arrested in order to prevent some sort of civil unrest. So that part of the passage in 2 Corinthians, where it says that Saul was let down in a basket, that's, that's verse 33, agrees with Luke's retelling of these events over in Acts chapter 9 and verse 25. Uh, the, the disciples let Saul down through the wall in a large basket. And then verse 26 says, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem. This is where we can turn over to Galatians chapter 1 and get a little better detail on the events that occurred following his conversion. We, we've already talked about some of this, but let's go ahead and read Galatians chapter 1 verses 11 through 24. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but bear with me. So, <clears throat> uh, Saul, who is Paul by this time, says, But I make known to you, brethren, and he's speaking to the churches collectively of Galatia, um, I make known to you that the gospel which was preached by me 
is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And in verse 18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. So part of what we learned from the set of passages is that there was a span of three years between his conversion and when he traveled back to Jerusalem. Uh, during that three years, he spent some days in Damascus, then went to Arabia, then returned to Damascus again before going on to Jerusalem. Now, we're not told why he went to Arabia or <clears throat> how long he was there. My original thought was, why would Saul go to Arabia when King Aretas was trying to have him arrested? But it wasn't King Aretas that was trying to arrest him, but the governor of that region around Damascus, who was under King Aretas. I suspect that with Damascus under Arabian rule, there would have been some Arabian citizens there, I don't think it's unreasonable to speculate that he may have been invited to some part of Arabia where he would have been provided for and, and given ample opportunity to teach and to preach. <clears throat> so back over to Acts chapter 9 and verse 26. Saul goes to Jerusalem and is met with considerable skepticism amongst the brethren. I mean... It comes right out and says here that they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. I suppose they thought that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, as they say, um, that he was just pretending to be one of them so that he could penetrate their defenses, as it were, to find out where Christians were assembling and where they lived and so forth. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it's easy to be critical of these Christians in Jerusalem. But remember, e even though three years have gone by, that's not nearly enough time to erase the vivid memories of some of their family and friends, dear brethren, being beaten 
you know, dragged from their homes, beaten, and, and ultimately put to death. But uh, here comes uh, Barnabas in verse 27, uh, swooping into the rescue. It says here that, that Barnabas took Saul to the apostles. Um, remember from Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Let me jump back over there. <clears throat> Saul said that he didn't see any of the apostles except Peter and James, the Lord's brother. So here's another situation where the skeptics and the naysayers, uh, the critics of the Bible will say that there's a contradiction. They'll say, well, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 27, it says that Barnabas brought him to the apostles. While in Galatians 1.19... Saul says he didn't see any of the apostles except Peter and James. And, and recall that this James was the Lord's brother and not one of the 12 apostles from Acts 2. But quite frankly, uh, I don't see where there's a contradiction here. If Peter and James were considered apostles, and in previous lessons we talked about what it means to be an apostle and, and how there's not always a clear distinction between the 12 from Acts 2 and others that were sent out. But if Peter and James were considered apostles, and they were, and Barnabas took Saul to see them, then he took them to see the apostles. Now, if Acts chapter 9 and verse 27, it said that Barnabas took him to see all of the apostles, and then Saul stated over in Galatians 1.19 that he only saw two of the apostles, then there would be a contradiction. <clears throat> we also learn from over in Acts chapter 22 and verse 17 about something else that happened while Saul was in Jerusalem. It says that he was praying in the temple and fell into some kind of trance. And from that trance, Jesus speaks to him again and says, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. And verses 19 through 21 are basically, uh, you know, is basically Saul answering back. And uh, I'll, you can read that and I'll sort of paraphrase it. Saul is saying, well, I'm not surprised. They know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, there I was guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. I even consented to his death myself. And in verse 21 is Jesus' reply. He just simply says, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. <clears throat> As we jump back over to Acts chapter 9 and verse 29, we see that while Saul is in Jerusalem, and we know that was 15 days from Galatians 1.19, that he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. Recall that the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. But that they uh, have this highlight in red here, but they attempted to kill him. So there was an attempt on Saul's life while he was in Damascus, and now there's an attempt on his life here. And recall from the words of Jesus over in Acts 27, verse 7, excuse me, Acts 26 and verse 17. This is Saul's retelling of his conversion story before King Agrippa. 
that, that Jesus promised to deliver him from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom he would be sent. So what happens in this case, back over in Acts chapter 9 and verse 30, it says that when the brethren found out about this plot to kill him, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him to Tarsus. And, and that's where our story about Saul of Tarsus is going to end for a while. His, his name pops up again near the end of Acts chapter 11, where it says that Barnabas uh, departed for Tarsus in search of Saul, and finding him, takes him back to Antioch. And by the way, that's over in uh, Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, right around in there, a passage that many of us have memorized, uh, at least the last part of that where it says that he spent an entire year there and taught many people. And that's where the followers of Christ were first called Christians. Now, <clears throat> back over to Acts chapter 9 and verse 32, it says, Now it came to pass. So we don't know how much time has passed by here, but in the course of time we see Peter traveling through all parts of the country. As part of those travels, he comes to this city called Lydda. And let me just blow this up for you here. Recall from uh, our previous lesson in Acts chapter 8, uh, that would be Acts chapter 8 and verse 40, that, that Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch on the road that led from Jerusalem to Gaza. So we have Jerusalem right here. Uh, recall that Philip went from Jerusalem to Samaria, worked for a time, and then was told by the Holy Spirit to go down to this road leading to Gaza, where he met the Ethiopian eunuch. And this, this map is supposed to depict the travels of Philip. We don't know that he went all the way to Gaza. What we do know is that he was found in Azotus, and that he preached in all the cities between Azotus and Caesarea. And of course, Lydda would have been one of those cities there. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it's too far-fetched to believe that the word was well-received in Lydda and that Philip sent word back to the apostles uh, about that. Oh, and by the way, let me let me show you this. The, the the photo on the right there, excuse me, the map on the right is kind of supposed to show Peter's, some of Peter's travels. We know that from Jerusalem, uh, he and John had gone up to uh, Samaria to lay hands on them. And then this map shows him in Lydda. And later in this lesson, we're going to see him over in Joppa. And then next week, we'll see him up in Caesarea. And as has happened on several previous occasions, uh, the apostles, that is the 12 from Acts 2, would send someone from among them to lay hands on these isolated believers. Now, why would they do that? Well, because only those 12 apostles could impart gifts of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of their hands. Why were the gifts of the Holy Spirit necessary at that time? Well, we should all know the answer to that by now. 
because those gifts help to reveal truth and confirm truth in the absence of the completed written revelation of God that we have today. All right, right here in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 and following, we see Peter and Lydda, and there is this man named Aeneas who is paralyzed. He's been bedridden for eight years. And we see in verse 34 that Peter says, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. This is the second time uh, Peter has done something like this. Recall from back in Acts chapter 3, right around verse 6, uh, there's a man at the temple begging for alms. Um, he had been lame from birth, and this is where Peter, uh, who's with John, says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And, of course, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 35, when this happens to Aeneas, it says, uh, All who dwelt in Lydda turned to the Lord. In our overview of the first 12 chapters of Acts, I stated that Sharon turned to the Lord. And then I asked the question, who was Sharon? What makes her so special that she is mentioned as turning to the Lord? Well, as you can see here, Sharon is not a person, but a, uh, a region. Let me blow this up for you again. The photo on the right is actually a photo of that uh, plain of Sharon. The plain of Sharon was uh, a very fertile plain along the coast of Palestine. It was about 10 miles wide and about 50 miles long. It actually began just south of Mount Carmel and extended all the way down to the uh, Ajalon Valley. Like I said, about 10 miles wide, 50 miles long, very fertile plain. What you're seeing on the right there is looking east toward the Judean hills. <clears throat> but um, Lydda would have been on the southeastern edge of this plain. So as, as Peter was traveling and teaching, in this region, there were many in the city of Lydda and throughout that fertile plain called Sharon that turned to the Lord. I think it's interesting <clears throat> that Luke uses the phrase, turn to the Lord, to describe this process of hearing the word, believing it, and, and literally turning away from their old lives to live new changed lives. And that is the same way we need to view the conversion process today. Uh, I have heard it said that some people are convinced, <laughs> but not converted. And there is a difference. I can be completely convinced that there is a God. I can be completely convinced that Jesus was a real person who was really crucified on a cross back in the first century. I, I could even be convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one of God, the very Son of God. I could be 100% convinced of all that and still be unwilling to do what Jesus said to do in order to be saved. Uh, in such a case... I would be unwilling to be converted, to, to bury the old man of sin 
and arise and walk in newness of life. We not only have to be convinced, but we have to turn to the Lord. We have to be converted. And an interesting side note, uh, Luke is the only one to use this phrase, and he uses it twice in the book of Acts uh, here, and then over in Acts chapter 11 and verse 21. <clears throat> Again, this is where Barnabas had, had, had traveled to Tarsus in order to find Saul. He finds him, and he took him back to Antioch. And it says here, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So, okay, back over in Acts chapter 9 and verse 36. We're going to close out this morning's lesson by talking about a woman of Joppa who was uh, very special to the brethren there. So special, in fact, that after she died, the brethren heard that Peter was only about 11 miles away in the city of Lydda and sent for him. Now, we don't, we don't know why they sent for Peter. Did, did they expect Peter to raise her from the dead? I mean, at this point, the apostles have been able to do many wondrous things through the power of the Holy Spirit, including miraculous he uh, healings. But uh, so far, none of them have actually raised someone from the dead. Uh, were they just wanting the comfort that perhaps Peter as an apostle could bring? You know, truly, death is a traumatic e event. Death is a separation. Uh, certainly, it's a separation of the body from the spirit, as James 2.26 tells us, but it's also a separation from one another. <clears throat> Over in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1, we see another Saul, King Saul in this case, and it is said of his son Jonathan that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Um, that's the same David who would become King David after King Saul. Uh, that word knit means a tight bond. In fact, the New Living Translation says that there was an immediate bond between them. The New International Version says that they became one in spirit. <clears throat> And we all know what knitting is, uh, or at least we think we know. Linda doesn't like it when I call her crochet work knitting. There are apparently some differences that escape the trained eye of the typical husband. And, and no offense to you husbands out there that are fond of knitting. Anyway, I, I do understand the concept that two things can be knit together. And, and when those two things that are knit together are pulled apart. It is not a pretty sight. But when someone dies, especially someone that's close to us, someone whose lives are closely knit to our own, there is real pain as the two lives are ripped apart. And, and that is accompanied by not just an emptiness that's difficult to feel, but real pain that comes from the separation. So here, back in Acts chapter 9 and verse 36, uh, here in Joppa was a disciple named Tabitha. And Luke actually provides two names here, Tabitha and Dorcas. The, the name Tabitha was of Aramaic origin. Now, Aramaic was the vernacular, the common language of the Jews in the first century. And that may sound a little confusing since we've already talked about Hebrew-speaking Christians versus Greek-speaking Christians. 
There, there are differences between Hebrew and Aramaic, but they're the same family. And it's outside the scope of the lesson to talk about that. But uh, can anyone venture a guess as to what the Aramaic word for the name Tabitha was? Anyone? Yes. Tabitha. The Aramaic word for Tabitha was Tabitha. <laughs> and it means gazelle. And that word gazelle sort of conjures up the image of boundless energy, doesn't it? And that seems to describe this woman very well. Uh, can't help but wonder what animal name would best describe each of us in our work for the Lord. Uh, let's not hope that it's uh, a sloth. And by the way, the Greek word for gazelle was Dorcas. So mystery solved. But, you know, we've seen a lot of Christians die here in the book of Acts. Uh, Stephen, of course, was martyred. We, we talk about how Saul had dragged Christians from their home and beat them, and, and many of them were put to death. So why here? Why now? Why Tabitha? Was, was Stephen not worthy to be raised from the dead? How about all those other Christians? Yeah, I, I know that's kind of a pointless question because we don't know the answer. We're not told. And if we're not told, we don't need to know. <laughs> but what we do know is that there was something special about Tabitha. Verse 36 says that she was full of good works and charitable deeds. Verse 39 says that as Peter is standing there in that upper room where they had laid her, he was surrounded by these widows who were very emotional and, and displaying the very tunics, the, the garments or the coats that Tabitha had made for them. <clears throat> but let me just back up just a minute, back to verse 36. She was full of good works and charitable deeds. You know, the thing that struck me as I was studying this was, shouldn't that have described all of them? Shouldn't that describe every one of us as Christians today? I mean, how is it that being full of good works and charitable deeds made Tabitha stand out above the rest? Um, you know, my answer to that is absolutely. That should describe every one of us as Christians. But, and I'm just speaking for myself here. You know, my heart may be in the right place, and I may have the best of intentions when it comes to good works and charitable deeds. But, well... Life has a tendency to get in the way sometimes. But Tabitha did not let life get in the way, and, and neither should we. What a legacy for any of us to be able to depart this world and leave behind those tokens of love, appreciation, encouragement, and fond memories that will last so much longer than we ever did. In verse 40, we see Peter sending everyone out of that upper room. He kneels and he prays and he says, Tabitha, arise. And he presents her, presents her alive to the brethren. <clears throat> and although we don't hear anything more about Tabitha, I can easily imagine her getting back to the business of serving others, of living up to her name as a gazelle for the Lord. And of course, verse 42 says this became known throughout all Joppa 
and many believed on the Lord. Yet another example of the purpose of the Holy Spirit in these early days of the church to confirm the word of God spoken by those who were performing these miracles and signs and wonders. And finally, that last verse of chapter 9. I know it's taken us a while to get here. Three lessons, hasn't it? Uh, verse 43 tells us that Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a man by the name of Simon who was a tanner. Well, we're out of time for today. Uh, thank you for watching or listening, whichever the case may be. Next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up where we left off and get into chapter 10, possibly chapter 11, where we'll see Peter again and the first Gentile converts to Christianity.